and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I'm talking about George Schlauser's 1988 film, The Vanishing. It's about Rex and Saskia, a Dutch couple who go on vacation in France and have their lives turned upside down when Saskia is abducted. I won't say more than that, in case you haven't seen the film, I obviously urge anyone listening to watch the film first and then listen because this episode is packed with spoilers. I suggest also not reading reviews of the film and going into it with as little information as possible because there's a very shocking ending that has haunted audiences for decades now. In this episode, I talk about the making of the film and why I think it's a true masterpiece. When I watched The Vanishing for the first time almost 10 years ago, the suspense was my main focus. With my second viewing for this episode, I felt the emotional power of the film. At its heart, I believe this film is about grief and loss. I came to some very personal revelations about myself while I was watching it, and I share those in this episode. This is one of the most important episodes I've ever created for this podcast. I've done over a hundred episodes now over the course of almost four years, and this is one of the most important that I've ever done. In my life lately, I've been going through a lot of internal reflection and thinking about my life, thinking about things I've been through. And this film hit me at this time in my life because I struggle with grief. I've been through a lot of loss and I saw some very powerful things in this film and it hit me on such a deep, deep emotional level. I'm glad I saw this film when I did. I share everything that it made me feel and how it affected me in this episode. It's deeply personal, it's raw, but there was a lot that I needed to say and that I needed to share. This film has absolutely affected my life in a very deep way, so I hope that you like this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadinfilms for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films. Or you could follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts on the show notes of each episode. I won't go on. Here is my episode about George Schlauser's 1988 film, The Vanishing. I 
first watched this film in 2012, I was looking back through some of the records that I kept around that time, and 2012 was a pretty amazing year for me when it came to cinema. I first got really, really interested in art house cinema in 2011. That is when I consider uh, the time that I became a cinephile was in 2011. I watched Chris Marker's La Jetée, and that was a really big moment for me. I watched Agnes Varda, Francois Truffaut. I watched a lot of like the French New Wave in 2011, I believe. Then in 2012, I watched even more art house cinema. And I don't know if some of you keep records or how you keep records, but I'm really glad I did keep records around that time and all the films that I was watching. Now I keep a spreadsheet. I also have lists on movie and letterbox just so I have backups. I like to have multiple ways that I record what I watch. I would suggest to you, I'm sure many of you listening already do this, but if you're kind of new in your film journey or you're just starting to become a cinephile or maybe you're really young and maybe you're not into lists or something or documenting, I definitely urge you to do it because I love being able to look back at 2012 or 2014 and to see the films I was watching and 2012 was a really good year for me. I watched about 150 films. (laughs) That was a lot. I became a maniac (laughs) with cinema. I was watching so many films. I was in college at the time and my nights were filled with cinema and my obsession with movies. And this was one of the films that I watched that year, The Vanishing. I watched a lot of Criterion Collection films that year as well. I watched this film eight years ago. It's 2020 as I record this. What a year it's been, right, with the COVID-19 pandemic. Actually, this year... I have been revisiting a lot of films that I watched years ago, like eight years ago. I've done quite a few episodes um, like that. So I saw The Vanishing and of course I loved this film the first time I saw it. It's deeply disturbing. It's a deeply haunting film as well. But I think that revisiting it eight years later now, and of course I knew the ending, The first time you watch it, I think this is a really interesting film when it comes to rewatching it. Because the first time you watch it, and I'm going to talk about this as I talk about the film as well. The first time you watch it, it is so suspenseful. The first time you watch it, you have no idea what's happening, what's coming, how everything is going to come together at the end. You don't know what's important and what's not important. Why is she burying these coins? What's the significance of this or that? You don't know as you're watching it that first time. Everything is a surprise. Everything is leading towards that ending. That is the propulsion and the force of the film is that ending and everything is building up to it. When you watch it a second time, it's a very different experience And I think it's even more meaningful and richer. So if you're listening to this episode right now and you've only watched it once, I'm going to urge you, seriously urge you to watch it a second time if you haven't yet. I think this film, I'll talk about this in my film analysis, is a masterpiece. I don't know if I would have used that word the first time I watched it. I gave it five stars. I like like I gave it the most stars you could on the different sites and I loved it and it was it's a favorite of mine for sure. I was knocked out by it. I don't know if I would have called it a masterpiece eight years ago, but watching it the second time, this is an absolute masterpiece. It is 
perfection almost I think um I don't know how other people feel about it I think what's amazing is that even when you take away the suspense of the film because the first time you watch it it's all about the suspense it's all about what it's building to at the end well with the second viewing you don't have that I know exactly what happens to Saskia and well not exactly. We don't know how she died. We have to take the word of the killer, right? And I know what happens to Rex. I know everything that happens. I had forgotten a few things, but I knew what was coming. I knew what was going to happen. What you have in the second viewing is a deeply emotional experience, and it was for me. And what came to the surface for me with the second viewing was how loss and grief and obsession and the need to know what happened to somebody that you loved that's what came to the surface for me this film was actually really emotional for me which is rare when it comes to a scary film or a thriller film i mean sometimes you'll come across scary films that have that aspect to it that emotional element not always so you take away the suspense of the film and it still holds up that's what I think makes it a masterpiece for me. And I'll dig into all this as I go deeper into the film. I am going very deep into this film. I didn't expect this when I chose it, when I chose to do an episode about it. I hadn't seen it for eight years, knew I loved it, knew it was powerful, knew it was a great film. So I had no doubt I was going to like it and enjoy this episode. Rewatched it the other night and had such an emotional experience with it and, and so many feelings that came through me as I watched it. And it really shocked me. I didn't know that would happen. And I was like, I have to talk about this film in depth. <laughs> so I knew I was going to like doing this episode. I knew I was going to like talking about this film, but I didn't realize what a deep emotional experience it was going to be and how much I just want to dig in and talk about it and just dissect this film. <laughs> like that's what I want to do. That's what these episodes are. I mean, I feel like these episodes are kind of for like hardcore people who just want to really go deeply into films and you want to hear my thoughts about them, we're going into it. We are going into this film very deeply, talking about everything we can about it. That's what we are doing. And I don't know why I'm talking about myself in the third person. <laughs> I am going to do all of that. I just wanted to urge you, if you've only seen the film once, you're missing something. I think you are missing the emotional part of the film that emerges and blossoms when you watch it the second time. Because this film to me, everybody talks about the killer. This film is about Rex for me. And Rex just fascinated me to no end. And I will talk about all this as I get into the film. First, I just wanted to give a little bit of background information. I'm not going to make this very long. There wasn't that much. The Vanishing has been released by Criterion Collection, so there is an edition of the film. There's not a lot of extras. There was, you know, there were a couple of interviews, one with the director, George Schlauser, and that was about it. So there wasn't a whole lot. So um, I'm just going to keep this brief. This film was directed by George Schlauser, and it was released in 1988. He says in interviews, he, he likes disturbing the audience. I have not seen any of his other films. I don't know how The Vanishing compares to those other films, what other themes he explored in his cinema. I don't know. But he said he wanted to disturb the audience because he wanted to make them think about what's right and what's wrong. And I do think there is a moral 
element to the film. I don't think it's focusing on a killer just to uh, focus on something exploitative or some kind of spectacle. It's not trying to glorify a killer. It's not trying to make him seem sexy or great. It's really, I think it's asking some deep questions about human nature, about morality. I think that the killer uh, Lamorne in this film. He's an interesting character. He tends to get all the attention, right? Everybody talks about Lamorne and this very cold, calculated killer and what he does. But like I said, to me, Rex is the more compelling figure and Rex kind of doesn't get talked about quite as much, I don't think. But I do think in the character of Lamorne, we see somebody who we don't know what to make of. We never know what to make of evil, or what to do with a person like this. And I think that Schlauser really digs into that character. And he wants to look at how can this man who has a wife and two children go and have this other side where he murders and he can hide it so brilliantly as well. So it's a really complicated character in that way, but I don't think it glorifies him or anything like that personally. Schlauser said that he was not interested in making a whodunit. He was interested in looking at why and how. And I think that's really compelling because So many films are about who did it, who did it, who's the killer. That's not what this film is about. We know who the killer is pretty early in the film. We see him and I think Schlauser is more interested in other questions. The film's not just about the murder. It's also about this couple. It's about a young love. It's about grief. It's about obsession. It's about evil obviously in the character of Lamorne it's it's just about so many different things it's not just about the murder although the murder is important or the more like the disappearance I guess that would be a more accurate thing to say the murder of Rex and the disappearance of Saskia we know he probably murdered Saskia but we never see that and we never know for sure how he killed her, even though he says that Rex is going to experience what Saskia experienced. And she most likely was killed the same way that Rex was, but he's unreliable and we can't trust anything that he says. This film is actually based on a book by the same name and that book was written by Tim Crabby or Tim Crabbe. Schlauser had previously adapted one of Tim's books. He read The Vanishing as it was being written, uh, which is kind of interesting. And he bought the rights immediately and wanted to make the film. At first, the writer of the novel also wrote a screenplay, but Schlauser didn't like it. And the two of them were in a lot of conflict trying to write the screenplay. Sometimes that happens. Schlauser as a director, I think is going to understand a bit more what's necessary to create a film out of the material because a book is very different from a film, but they clashed a lot and Schlauser eventually just finished the screenplay on his own and that really enraged Tim Crabbe. Like he did not like that at all (laughs) and it, it kind of, it affected their relationship for a long time. The murderer was originally supposed to be played by Jean-Louis Trintignant which is really interesting to think about, but he was busy doing something else. He's a very legendary actor. Johanna Terstig had not done a film before. This was her very first film. She was recommended to Schlauser by somebody that saw her in like a student play, and she looked a lot like Schlauser's daughter. He liked her freckles. 
he liked her hair. She dyed it a bit more red. So she kind of is strawberry blonde in the film. And he liked her hair. He liked her freckles. He liked the way she looked. And this was her very first film. And she made this elaborate backstory about Saskia. She was really dedicated to the role. She did have some issues on set with Bernard Pierre Donadou, who plays Raymond Lamour in The Killer. He was quite difficult to work with. And she almost left the film because of it. It was such a difficult working environment and difficult experience working with him. But Schlauser, I think, had a talking with Donadou and got him to change and got him to behave better towards her. This was her first film. She was very insecure. She was worried. It was just a new experience for her and she needed that encouragement. Schlauser himself said that he doesn't think in terms of black and white. He always thinks in terms of gray. And he said in an interview that he thinks anybody is capable of good and bad. So I don't even think that he sees the mourn as totally bad and then Rex as totally good. He tried to show these characters in shades of gray. That's the thing I think with Lamorne, he's not even black and white, right? Like, so he kills Saskia and Rex, but then look how loving he is towards his family. Or think of when later on he saves the child who's drowning. He is also a complex character and I don't think we know what to make of that. And then Rex has a pretty disturbing moment in the tunnel that I'll talk about in my film analysis that shows a dark side of him that we don't expect. So all of these characters are really complex and complicated. I think that makes the film stronger. We're not given saintly characters. Saskia and Rex are not saintly. They're not perfect and pure. They're complicated figures as well. At first, this film had a really difficult time getting distributed. Schlauser could not find a distributor for it. Nobody was interested in it, which shocks me. It t I wonder if people didn't know what to make of it, because it does feel unconventional to me because of the way everything builds up to that ending. And the ending is deeply disturbing, I'm sure. It took a really long time for him to find a distributor. Eventually, the film was shown at the Sydney Film Festival. The Audience Award was given to it and people just went crazy over it. And that's when the life of this film really started. Stanley Kubrick was a huge fan of this film. He was just obsessed with it. And Schlauser talks about how Kubrick would call him up <laughs> and talk about the film. He saw it many, many times and just would call up Schlauser and go into detail, dissect the film. He was obsessed with it for a long time. And according to Schlauser, Kubrick said this was the most terrifying film he had ever seen. So that's according to Schlauser. This was the most terrifying film that Stanley Kubrick ever saw in his life. I think that's pretty compelling and very powerful. It's one of the most terrifying films that I have seen. I have an episode about the most terrifying film I have ever watched. And that film is Testament by Lynn Lippman. And you can listen to that episode. It'll be linked in the show notes. That to me, personally is the most frightening film I've ever watched in my life. This one is a close 
second probably, or at least in the top three or top five. This is absolutely a terrifying film on every level. And I think for a lot of people, it is the most terrifying that they've ever watched. It taps into a lot of fears. So now I'm going to get into my film analysis and I'm just going to go through this film and very in-depth talk about different things about it. The way I wanted to structure this episode is a, is by the characters themselves and their relationships and it'll also follow the chronology of the film pretty well. So I want to talk about, for instance, at the beginning, Rex and Saskia together. Then there's a section of the film that is just about Raymond Lamorne. Then there is the section where Rex is on his own or with his girlfriend and he's living his life without Saskia and he's haunted by her death. And then later on in the film, it's it's Raymond Lamorne and Rex together. That's what's really interesting to me is that there are, as you watch the film, there are these distinct parts of it that are about different characters and then about the collision of these characters in each other's lives and their relationships to one another. And that's the way I want to talk about the film as well. So our characters are Saskia Vogter, I think, played by Johanna Terstig. Then we have Rex Hoffman, played by Jean Bervotes. And then we have Raymond Lamorne, played by Bernard Pierre Donadou. Those are our main three characters in this film. So the beginning of the film is very important to show the relationship between Rex and Saskia, who these people are. And what's interesting about Johanna Terstig is that she's not in the film very long. She herself in an interview said she's only in the film for about 11 minutes. The film is about an hour and 40 minutes. So she's in a very, very small amount of it. And yet she is absolutely one of the most crucial characters as we know. So in that 11 minute time frame, everything had to be established about Saskia and about her relationship with Rex. And a lot happens in that 11 minutes, right? So much happens in the first few minutes of the film. And it's amazing, like I said, and I'll be talking about this a lot I'll be talking about my second viewing of the film and what that brings to it for me. And what I felt in the second viewing was that relationship, was Rex and Saskia. The emotion between them, the intensity between them. This film's not just about a murder. Of course it is about a murder. But it's also a film about young love, about a relationship that is cut short, a relationship that's never allowed to blossom. Throughout the film, once she has disappeared, once she has vanished, we're not just haunted by her, we're not just haunted by the fact that she's most likely dead. We're also haunted by what she could have been. We're haunted by what they could have been together. We're haunted by that relationship and the way that it is ended so abruptly. And their relationship is very interesting. They're only together for about 10 minutes of the film. We see them driving. They are Dutch, but they're going on vacation in France. And that's where they end up eventually. They're laughing in the car. They're playing games. They are your quintessential young couple. Just in love, just drunk and intoxicated by love. By being together. But quickly, this lovely, happy, delightful relationship goes into dark territory. When they start to drive through this tunnel, eventually they 
run out of gas. Before they run out of gas, Saskia talks about a dream that she had, this recurring dream that will also recur a bit in the film. And it's, she had this dream where she was in this golden egg that she couldn't get out of. And there was this other golden egg nearby. If the two eggs were about to collide, everything would be over. And it's that other golden egg that haunts her and that stays with her about the dream. You have to wonder as she's telling the story, or at least I did with my second viewing, and one wonders as she's telling the story, what form will that other golden egg take on in her life? The golden egg represents this thing that is coming for her, that is on its way to collide, to crash into her and into her life. And I think that's what true crime and also films like this, thriller, scary type films, maybe even horror films, I think that's what they tap into for me. I have a big interest in true crime. I've talked about it in various episodes and I will infuse some of that into this episode because the character of Raymond Lamorne has some parallels with some serial killers and I think there were certain choices made in the film or in the narrative that were purposeful and that were connected particularly to Ted Bundy. So I have an interest in true crime. It's not some kind of exploitative interest. I mean, I'm just genuinely interested in the trauma and the the pain that is caused to victims and to people who go through that, especially women in particular. And it's just been an interest of mine. I used to watch forensic shows when I was a kid. When I was growing up in the 1990s, I would watch forensic files and Unsolved Mysteries, City Confidential, American Justice, a lot of stuff that came on the A&E network at that time. And I just grew up on these shows. I still watch them. I'm not ashamed to say that. I just have an interest in true crime. It's just part of my life. I'm not some kind of web sleuth or anything like that, but I watch shows about it. So I think that true crime and also scary films like this tap into certain fears for me personally. The fear that my life will collide with someone else's and that someone that I don't know could take my life or the life of someone I love and I would have no control over it. I think that's a general fear of mine, not just with true crime, but that any stranger could just come out of nowhere and abruptly affect my life in a really terrifying way. Could hurt me or, I mean, think of like a a car accident or something like that where somebody could hurt you or hurt someone you love and you can't do anything about it. That's a really scary feeling, I think. And that's what happens to Saskia. This this Raymond Lamorne comes out of nowhere and takes her life, uh, destroys Rex's life, and they have no control over it. And they're powerless to stop it. I think the film taps into certain very primal fears that we all have. Fear of death, fear of loss, fear of someone we love vanishing into thin air, fear of the dark, of confined spaces, a fear of murderers, right? And criminals. I think those are a lot of fears that many of us share. Now, I have been thinking lately that my, I think my true crime interest probably makes me irrationally scared or too scared. And I do think that it probably shades the way that I see the world, that maybe I see the world as a scarier place than it really is. And maybe I see people, particularly men, in more negative ways than I should. And I've been actually interrogating that and thinking more about it of how am I letting true crime give me 
a false sense of people because I'm kind of distrustful and I'm kind of like a little bit uneasy with people and things like that. Of course you have to be cautious. Of course you have to like be careful when you're out in the world, right? But I have thought a bit about like, wow, maybe true crime is giving me this irrational fear of things that I shouldn't have. And I just have to be careful with it, I think. And I do also think that I need to just balance how much I watch of it. Like I watched a really powerful series on HBO called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And it's about Michelle McNamara, who wrote a book about the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, as some of you may know, and she ended up dying while she was writing the book. What hit home for me about that series, it's very powerful, particularly the last episode, is the way that it's not just about the Golden State Killer. It's about the writing of the book. It's about Michelle's interest in true crime. It's about the victim's But it's also about one woman's obsession and the toll of that obsession. Michelle McNamara's obsession was the Golden State Killer, was knowing who he was, unmasking him, and also telling the story, the story of the victims. And if you think about it, Rex in this film has a very deep obsession. He not only wants to know who did it, who took Saskia from him, he wants to know how she died. He has this very deep need and this obsession to know. And I saw that kind of in Michelle McNamara too, of this need to know who the Golden State Killer was. And she paid the price for it. Like it took a toll on her emotionally and psychologically because her death was related to drug abuse. And it's possible she was dependent on these drugs because of the darkness that she was entering. Looking at crime scene photos, reading the stories of the victims, right? All of that may have taken a toll on her and she may have needed some kind of escape from that. I know she was having nightmares. So what that series did for me was make me step back and think about, wow, how much am I watching of this? I need to make sure that I'm not going overboard, right? And not going too much into really dark, disturbing things. It's not healthy to always do that. And so I've just been thinking more about my interest in true crime and just trying to make sure that I'm balancing it. Like I might watch a true crime show and then I need to watch The Golden Girls or I need to watch a British historical drama like Home Fires, which I started recently and love. I absolutely love British shows about strong, amazing women like the Bletchley Circle and now I'm starting Home Fires. There's this really great show called The Crimson Field about nurses, British nurses in the First World War. It only got like one season, but I really loved it. So I really love films like set in the past about women and the things that they did. And I'm like, you know what? I need my true crime, but I also need my British shows or I need my Golden Girls or I need something to balance that. I need to laugh. I need joy. And it's the same with something like The Vanishing. This film really affected me. Like it's really dark and disturbing. So I need to be careful when I'm watching something like this. 2020 has been a hard year. It's going to be hard for a long time with this pandemic. I need to make sure that I'm also bringing things into my life that have joy in them and have good things and positive things. 
because you don't want to stay in that darkness for a really long time. So the film taps into a lot of these fears. Sasky and Rex go into this tunnel. It runs out of gas. She gets really upset because she had told him to get the gas. He didn't listen to her. And she starts to get really upset. Because they're in a dark tunnel, there are vehicles that are going to be going through the tunnel that that are not going to see them. And they could get hit in the process and it could kill them. And she's desperately searching for a flashlight when she's in the car. And she's really starting to just have a breakdown almost. She's crying and, and all of this. And he decides in that moment that he's just going to leave her. He's going to leave her in the car. And he starts to walk out of the tunnel to go get gas. He just abandons her in this very dangerous situation when she's terrified. When she's terrified, he shows very little concern for her in that moment. And to me, this felt like a turning point in the relationship. It was so jarring too, how we had just seen them laughing and in love. And then now he's just abandoning her. She's just screaming as he walks away, just screaming at him, just crying and sobbing. And and there's like this little smile that appears on his face as he's leaving her. And it sent a chill down my spine to see that. It was so heartless and callous and cruel. And I think it does speak to the cruelty that we can show to one another sometimes. None of us are perfect. We have moments that we're not proud of. And this is one for Rex. I was really shocked by it, but I like that Schlauser included it because I think it could also help explain Rex's guilt and what he feels regarding Saskia. That the last day they were together, this happened. That just a few hours before she was taken, he did this to her. And he treated her like this. And I do have to wonder if it explains some of his obsession about it. He returns with the gasoline. And there's this scene where he's driving through the tunnel. She has left the tunnel. She finally found the the flashlight. He has the gasoline. And he gets in the car. And he's driving out of the tunnel. And he goes into the daylight. And there she is in the daylight. Holding the flashlight. And she has to get back in the car with him after this has happened. I felt like this was a breaking point for the relationship. I almost felt like, how does the relationship even go on after this moment? It's a moment that I think a lot of people have experienced. It's that moment when you can't go back. You can't see a person the same way again. You see how different they are from you. Maybe that you're not compatible or you don't have enough in common or you just can't make it work. And I do think that this fight does make him feel more guilty when she goes missing. Maybe he even feels more responsible. There's a lot of subtle stuff going on in this film and that relationship has a lot of subtlety. It's like when Rex leaves her, it's almost like that moment when someone we thought we knew becomes a stranger and you and you glimpse some kind of darkness in them that is uncontrollable and terrifying. And so it's so interesting to me that in this film, we see people in such shades of gray, where we see a murderer like Lamorne doing something heroic when he saves a child from drowning. And then we see a fundamentally good person like Rex do something really cruel and callous to Saskia. We see all of that. We see all of that nuance in these characters. They do it 
in like a few minutes. They did this within 10 minutes of the film. They showed all these shades of this relationship between Saskia and Rex. The love that they have for each other, but also the anger that's there as well. And she's crying in the car when she gets in. And when they drive into this certain part of France, they unknowingly drive past Raymond Lamorne. That's how I interpreted it. It's like they drive past and then we see Lamorne in his vehicle. He's in his car putting on that fake cast. This is a ruse that I'm sure many of you know that Ted Bundy used to put his victims at ease and to not raise suspicions that he was dangerous. This is how he would lure women. He would have a cast usually on his arm and he would ask them, can you help me? I need help getting something into my car. And because he was injured, it put these women at ease and they didn't feel as scared of him. They wanted to help him and he was preying on people's good nature, people wanting to help other people and particularly women. And he, he was preying on that goodness in these women which is so tragic in my opinion. Lamorne is the other golden egg. He is the thing that is about to smash into their lives shortly and they don't even know it when they drive past his vehicle. They stop at the gas station. This is the scene of the vanishing, right? This is where the vanishing occurs, the abduction occurs. It's a very crowded place. And I think Schlauser said he did that on purpose. He wanted it to be crowded. He wanted it to be chaotic. And of course the crowd is what gives you a sense of safety. You think, oh, there's no way that anything bad could happen here. There's all these people around who would see it, but that's not what happens. When Saskia goes missing, nobody sees anything. They don't notice anything at all. And this reminded me of something that happened uh, in the state where I live. A young woman was abducted at a gas station and she was eventually murdered. And this story has always haunted me because every day people go to gas stations. And I remember years ago, a girl was abducted at Target. And this was when I was pretty young. I don't know if I was still in school or not, like high school. Maybe it was later when I was in college. She got abducted at a Target. And I just always remembered that because people go to Target every day. (laughs) I went to Target. You know, people go to gas stations every day. These are ordinary places and they seem safe and they seem like nothing bad could happen here. And then Saskia is abducted. When they get to the gas station, they make up in the car. He says he loves her they they kiss but I don't know I, I was thinking as I was watching it I think that fight was a really big deal I think him abandoning her was a really big deal and maybe she feels in that moment she has to make peace like what else is she gonna do she's a foreigner in France <laughs> like she kind of has to stay with him but I do wonder if maybe later on when they got back to the Netherlands if she would have broken up with him but maybe she wants to give him another chance later on they're lying in the grass and she makes him swear not to abandon her remember that and at one point there's this look of sadness that comes over her face and I wonder what that means the whole film up to that point she's been smiling although she was crying and she was really upset when he abandoned her but it's so jarring to see her like smiling and saying you better not abandon me And then all of a sudden her face just goes so sad. It's like, what is she feeling in that moment? That they won't make it? That they'll break up later on? Or maybe she has this feeling that something bad's about to happen? I don't know. But there was something in that moment, like what happened to her face, that made me wonder. The relationship in this film is not idealized. 
That's also what I like about it. It doesn't show a perfect young couple. It shows them fighting. It shows them upsetting each other, angry, doing hurtful things, mainly him to her. It's not idealized, but in Rex's mind, later on, it is idealized. I think when he thinks about Saskia and that relationship, he only sees it through like rose-colored glasses. And he probably thinks they would have gotten married and had children and been together the rest of their lives. And I think the film asks us as viewers to think, maybe not. (laughs) Maybe she would have left him or broken up with him. We don't know. So the film shows it in a more complex way. She goes into the gas station to get the drink and he never sees her again. That's what happens at the beginning of the film. Later on in the film, we we know what happened in the gas station, but at the beginning, we don't see any of it. We only see Rex walking around trying to find her. So it's this nightmare that has come to life to just never see someone again and never know what happened to them. That's the terror of this film. You could be talking to someone one minute the way Rex is to Saskia and then the next minute they've disappeared and it happens in a crowded place too where one should be safe and seen. It happens within minutes. It's very sudden. It's very jarring. It's very shocking and there is something deeply frightening about a person disappearing without a trace. I remember when I was young my mom and I went to um, a department store at the mall and I'll never forget this. Somehow we got separated And I didn't know where she was. I was just wandering around this department store by myself. It's so strange the things we remember. And she couldn't find me. And I think she was pretty frantic about it. I think she told me that later. That it had never happened before where where she lost sight of me. Right? Where she lost me, basically. And imagine that fear that you have lost a being, a person that you are responsible for. And I think in a way Rex feels responsible for Saskia. It's his girlfriend. He's her boyfriend. He's supposed to be her protector, right? And he loses her. Like my mom lost me in that department store. Eventually, I think I heard my name over the loudspeaker and I went to somewhere where my mom was and she was really relieved to find me. But I can just imagine the fear that she must have felt. So I think a lot of people live with the fear of someone they love vanishing in that way. And I do watch things about it. Like because of my interest in true crime, I do watch shows about people who have vanished and their families don't know what happened to them. There's a show called Disappeared that used to come on. I don't know if they're doing new episodes of it, but it came on the Investigation Discovery Channel. And it was about people who disappeared and nobody had seen them. And sometimes when you watch old episodes of Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack, one of my favorite shows, I love Robert Stack, they will talk about cases of people who have vanished and they were never found and the families never know what happened to them. And I would imagine that you realize how large the world is. There's billions of people and you can't find the one person that you're looking for. All these people and you can't find the one you want. It's like a needle in a haystack. How do you find this person? And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to find her. He goes around looking for her, asks people. He learns that she had been by the coffee machine. Somebody says that she left with a man. She was carrying two drinks. He realizes that 
he actually captured the moment when she and this man were leaving the gas station because at that very moment he was taking a Polaroid picture and he captured a little bit of her and that guy but not enough to identify the man or anything like that and he doesn't really go to the police that that was the part that shocked me I don't know if things are different in France but here in the United States if that happened people would immediately go to the police. Like that's what you would do because somebody has vanished and you need a search party or you need them to look into it. I don't know if the police would do a lot at first. Sometimes there are like uh, protocols like, oh, you have to wait 24 hours or you have to wait 48 hours before you can declare somebody missing. But it kind of surprised me he didn't immediately go get support or start searching for her with the police. I guess that's just not what they did there. Um, he's talking to like uh, somebody that works at the gas station and they tell him that they probably won't take it seriously they'll see it as a domestic thing and not look for her so I guess it's just kind of futile to even do that so once that happens the film then shifts to Raymond Lamorne and some of his life his some of his attempts to kill or his attempts to kill come out more near the end when Lamorne is talking to Rex about that the first little bit of the film is Rex and Saskia. And then this part of the film is just Raymond Lamorne and his life. This part of the film brings up a lot of questions and makes us think about the nature of evil. What does evil look like? Can we identify it? Like I think about that. And I talk a bit about this in my episode about The Night of the Hunter, directed by Charles Lawton. I have an episode about it. And the main character in that film, he's a preacher. He's played by Robert Mitchum. He doesn't look like a killer. He doesn't look dangerous. He actually looks alluring and handsome and seductive. And he looks like that for a reason. Because we don't know what an evil person looks like. We don't know what everybody is capable of. And Lamorne is a very good example of that. Like, so normal, so ordinary. Or you think about somebody like Ted Bundy. Looked very normal. I was reminded a bit of the detective in Memories of Murder by Bong Joon-ho. I have an episode about that film. This detective thinks that he can tell if someone is a killer or a criminal just by looking in their eyes. Like he thinks that he can just tell by somebody's eyes, but it's not that simple and it's not that easy. And we see that with Lamorne. Nobody suspects him of being a murderer. Nobody. It never comes across their radar that he could be capable of that. And this killer, Lamorne, is kind of a cross between Ted Bundy and BTK. Uh, Dennis Rader was called BTK, the bind torture kill um, killer. Um, he was a serial killer, as was Ted Bundy. And I've watched a few shows about Ted Bundy and Dennis Rader because of my true crime interest. So when I was looking at Raymond Lamorne, I was reminded of these two men because Lamorne is so ordinary and so normal the way that those particular men were. Ted Bundy had a girlfriend and that girlfriend had a daughter. He was like a father figure kind of to her. They never suspected that he was a serial killer. BTK I think he was really active in his church. He had children. He had a wife. They never suspected a thing, ever. Lamorne is able to blend in. And I think killers like this are always the most terrifying because you can't tell what they are. You, you can't see the darkness because they hide it so well. When the vanishing was made, 
Ted Bundy would have been known about. Ted Bundy was actually still alive. I don't think he was executed until 1989. BTK had not been caught yet. Dennis Rader was not caught, I think, until the early 2000s. So they wouldn't have even known about him. But in hindsight, Lamorne is very similar to really any of these killers who have very normal lives where they blend in so well. We see Lamorne with his wife and children. They've bought this house in the countryside. It's like a vacation home that he goes to a lot. We just see these ordinary moments like they're sitting eating dinner. He puts like spiders in a drawer, right? And the daughter opens the drawer and they have this screaming match out outside like they're just screaming and then later on he asks a neighbor did you hear some screaming over on my property and the neighbor didn't hear it so he knows that if there's any screaming on that property nobody is going to hear it and what this property becomes this estate it becomes like his his killing field if you think about it he starts to rehearse murders there rehearse what he would do to kidnap women and to um to fool them and to you know the ruses that he comes up with so it becomes his playground his killing field where he can rehearse these things and he goes to the house so much that his wife starts to get suspicious that he's cheating on her that's really the only moment when there's a crack in his facade and when his wife kind of questions him for the rest of the film the family seems really happy together there's a scene where he picks up his daughter from school and he opens the car door for her the way that he's been rehearsing how he will open the car door for women in the future that he wants to kidnap he opens the car door and then he walks around the car and then when he's out of sight of the woman that's when he gets his chloroform ready he's already rehearsed all of that And it's very chilling to see him do similar actions, similar mannerisms with his daughter in the car. And when we see his daughter, what struck me about her was how much she looked like Saskia. That she had the freckles and the blonde hair. Uh, That really struck me. These scenes are actually going back in time. The way that the film plays with time is really interesting because at first we see Rex and Saskia and then at the gas station and then when it goes into the Raymond Lamorne section right after she disappears, what we're actually in with Raymond Lamorne at this point in the film is before he even gets to the gas station. So I don't know, like, I just thought that was interesting that all of this preparation that we see at the country estate, picking up his daughter, all that stuff, all of that has actually happened before he even meets Saskia and before he even arrives at the gas station. So the film itself is interesting in in the way that it looks at time. And then it jumps three years later. And then when Rex and Raymond Lamorne are together in the car, it jumps back in time again when Raymond is talking about his childhood, talking about other women that he tried to abduct, right? So it's just interesting, I think, how time happens. And so in this section, it builds up to him arriving at the gas station. This is the place where his life will collide with Saskia's life and when he will abduct her. And there's this amazing scene where you see her face reflected in his sunglasses. It is such 
an amazing scene. Like, I don't even know how to talk about it. It's an amazing effect that the director, that Schlauser was able to create. And this film, more than being suspenseful and being a really fascinating story, the way it's told visually is really unique and extraordinary in my opinion. Sometimes when we get horror films, and this is not a horror film, it's more of like a thriller or a scary film, I guess. I don't know all these different genres. You know, you'll get a good story and it'll be really interesting, but you don't necessarily get something that is visually compelling, that is visually artistic. This is a scary art film, I would call it. What's being done visually is just as interesting as what's happening in the story. Like the way you look at it is really fascinating. Think about when Rex is driving through the tunnel and you see Saskia appearing in the light or when you see Saskia reflected in Lamorne's sunglasses or later on when, and I'm going to talk about this scene in depth, when Rex is running around the tree as it's raining and he's debating whether to drink the coffee that's laced with a sleeping pill. We see Lamorne's face through the rain-soaked windshield and the way that it distorts Lamorne's face. Like there are visual, there's visual imagery in this film that is like haunting and that will stay with me. So it's not just the way the film is told through suspense and all of that. It's told in a visually compelling, unique, stunning way. I mean, you look at those images and they make you think and they have like this deeper meaning to them. So seeing her face in those sunglasses, I don't even know how he came up with that effect, but it's haunting and really dazzling, I think. And at that moment, we're not shown how he kidnapped her. I would imagine the first time you watch it, that's a big part of the suspense. Schlauser gives you these little nuggets, these little breadcrumbs, and you have to keep watching because like Rex, you want to know. That's so interesting, actually. I just realized that, that Schlauser in many ways puts the audience in the shoes of Rex. That just like Rex, we are obsessed with knowing what happened to Saskia. But in a way, it's withheld from us. We know how Rex dies. We don't know for sure how Saskia died. So in a way, just like Rex doesn't know, we don't know either. Ultimately, it's withheld from us. We don't know what he did with Saskia's body. We don't know exactly how he killed her. We know she probably most likely died the same way that Rex did, but not, you know, not completely. We don't know for sure. So Schlauser withholds things throughout the film to build the suspense, to create the suspense, which makes sense, really. At this point, the film fast forwards three years into the future, and this is the section of the film that I see as being just about Rex and about his life without Saskia, his obsession with finding out what happened to her. And we see what Saskia's disappearance has done to him. So three years later, Rex starts to have these posters put up around parts of France where Saskia went missing. And Lamorne sees one of these posters. And that's how we know that it's been three years. Even though Rex has a new girlfriend, he cannot stop searching for Saskia and trying to find out what happened happened to her. He needs to know. 
he needs to know. In his mind, he she could even be alive. He doesn't know for sure that she was kidnapped. He doesn't know if she just walked away from her life. Uh, the chances of that are pretty slim, right? But it's possible that she could be alive. He doesn't know. And Schlauser said something very interesting in an interview. He said that Saskia, her, the absent girl, I think he called her the absent girl, is more powerful than the present girl. And the present girl would be Rex's current girlfriend who is beautiful and lovely and even accompanies him on his searches for Saskia, his search for the killer. But Saskia is always central. She is always the one that he thinks about and that he cares about. And her her absence is more powerful than the presence of this new girlfriend. We also find out that Lamorne has been contacting Rex, that he's been sending him postcards to meet at different places. And we see Rex go to this cafe and he thinks that he might meet the killer. That's the postcard that he's received. Rex and his girlfriend go to this cafe. They take photos and things like that. This is the fifth time that Rex has done this. And so we we realize that there's also a cat and mouse game going on between Lamorne and Rex, between these two men, and that Rex can't stop. He can't get out of that game. He's got to go. When he gets a postcard, he's got to go just like he goes to that cafe. And at one point, Lamorne actually sits near him. He sits near him at the cafe. And I think there's another scene where he's like on a balcony looking at Rex. And Rex doesn't even know it. He has no idea how close Lamorne is to him. The girlfriend even tries to warn Rex. Her words are going to fall on deaf ears. He can't stop. He can't resist the need to know. He can't resist playing the game in the hopes that he will know and that he will learn. This is when we realize he has an obsession, that it has absolutely become an obsession. And it doesn't always happen with people. There are people who lose those they love, who disappear, and they never know what happened to them. And they don't necessarily get obsessed with it. They find ways to live with it. They find ways to move forward in their lives. And they may still search for that loved one. They may still go on Unsolved Mysteries or some kind of show. Or they might participate in a book or a documentary. It's not that they give up. It's just that 20 years have passed and they've done everything they can. And Rex takes it to another level. And he can't let it go. It is an obsession. And he even tells his girlfriend that he wishes he could go back three years to that gas station. I think he's trapped in that moment of her disappearance. He's trapped in it. And I think he feels like he should have protected her and he couldn't. So I think he feels responsible. And I also think that that fight that they had and the way that he abandoned her haunts him as well. That just a little while before her death, he did that to her. Because in that moment in the tunnel, he didn't protect her either. She was scared. She was crying for him, sobbing for him, yelling out his name, and he just kept walking away. He didn't go back. He didn't save her. He didn't help her. He didn't comfort or console her. He just left her and abandoned her. She could have got hurt in that moment. She could have got abducted at that moment. I wonder, I bet like the first time I watched the film, I bet that was the scene where I thought she would be abducted. 
I bet that happens to a lot of viewers where you think, oh, she's in a dark tunnel. Somebody could come along and just take her while he's gone. But Schlauser kind of plays with us a little bit like, no, it's not. <laughs> she doesn't get abducted in the dark tunnel when her boyfriend isn't around. She gets abducted in the crowded gas station and her boyfriend is only a few yards away. He kind of plays with us a little bit with the suspense there. We don't know when she's going to go missing. Because of course, from the title, you know something's going to happen. Somebody's going to get um, abducted, most likely her, and you're waiting, I think, that first time. Like, when is it going to happen? When's she going to get taken? But when you watch the second time, you're able to focus more on the nuances of the relationship between the two of them. And with Rex, I found myself focusing more on his processing of this trauma, his processing of her disappearance and the grief and what he felt about that. There's a moment when his girlfriend walks away and he runs after her and it made me think like I bet when he's with his girlfriend he watches her all the time like I bet he is wondering what could happen to her at all times I would imagine that like an experience like that would always have you on edge like when someone you love disappears I wonder if there's that fear that it'll happen again I really feel like at its heart this film is about loss it is about loss and grief. And that was something that I hit on immediately because that's a big subject and a big theme in my own loss and in my own life is grief and loss because of what I've been through. Because I lost my father when I was a teenager. He passed away in 2006 and I was only 16 years old at the time. His death has just haunted me and tormented me almost 15 years now. It's made it hard for me to move on. It's made it hard for me to live. I was so traumatized by it and it was so inconceivable and unthinkable that it would happen. I mean, if you think about it, death is the ultimate vanishing. That a person who is in your life day after day, like for me, it was my dad, day after day, there for 16 years. And then one day he's just not there. One day he isn't alive. Now, yes, I knew how he died. I was able to bury him. People who have loved ones who disappear, who literally disappear, they never know. They don't have a grave. They don't have a body. They don't have anything. And I've thought about how horrific that must be. I think that's an ultimate fear for a lot of us. Not just our own death or our own suffering, but to think that somebody we love could be hurt, could be taken, could disappear, and we would never know what happened to them. And we would never have a body to bury. And I can't even, like your mind can't even go there. But in a way, we all vanish. We all disappear. You know, my dad's gone. He's gone forever. And that absence, just like the absence of Saskia for Rex, is so enormous in my life and so painful and so unspeakable, even though I talk about it a lot on the podcast. But that is, I share it because I share it for a lot of reasons. I talk about grief and loss on this podcast pretty regularly. In case other people can relate to the experience, maybe other people are grieving. Maybe other people have a traumatic loss in their past and they can't deal with it. They can't move forward. It makes you feel frozen in time in a specific moment, just the way that Rex is. Rex is frozen in that moment with Saskia at the gas station. And I often feel frozen as that 16-year-old girl 
on the day that he died. I feel like I cannot get out of it. I'm just suspended in resin in that moment, just fossilized in that moment. I can't move forward. I can't move back. I'm trying, especially this year in 2020. I have been trying really hard to face some of these demons and face the pain of it and figure out how how I can live because I don't feel like I've been living for a really long time and I don't know yet I don't have it figured out I'm in the I'm in the muck of it you know and I'm trying to figure out a way forward with my life I'm trying to figure out a way to heal even if I don't know if I believe in healing or if it's possible for me but I'm trying to figure out a way to live with his death better. I'm trying to figure out a way to cope with it better. I have good days and I have bad days. A lot of bad days mainly. <laughs> but I'm trying. I don't... The thing is, is I don't want to be stuck in it anymore. I think Rex doesn't even know he's stuck in it. I don't even think Rex realizes the problem of it. That he is unwell. That this obsession is abnormal. He can't live his life. He is so bound to the past. He is so obsessed with the past, so obsessed with what happened to Saskia. So I saw myself in Rex. That's why I also am sharing this is because I can't talk about Rex and I can't talk about this part of the film without saying when I was a child, when I was a teenager, I lost somebody in a really traumatic way and I was never the same and that I feel haunted by the dead. I feel, you know, obsessed with it and I can't get past it either. So I see myself in Rex too. There's this scene halfway through the film and it's a stunning, stunning scene that I can't get over and that I've actually been thinking about ever since I watched the film. It's not a scene that stayed with me the first time that I watched. This is, again, another great example of a second viewing and what it can bring to you. It can bring more richness. It can bring more meaning. It can bring more emotion. This film was so much more emotional than I expected. And the emotion is in Rex. And it's in his relationship to Saskia, his relationship to her memory, and his inability to deal with losing her. He's a grieving man. He is a man in anguish. This is this performance by Gene Bearvotes is extraordinary. I don't know why he doesn't get talked about more when it comes to this film. I think his performance is stunning. He gave so many different nuances in his performance where one minute he's very loving and romantic and in love with Saskia. The next, he's abandoning her in the tunnel. Like, there's this cruelty that comes out. And then the next, he's, like, losing his mind with grief. He is going mad with grief. And then he's obsessed. And then he's angry. So many things. And then, of course, the final scene, the ending scene, what he does there in in that box and what he has to convey... I think his performance was extraordinary. I, I don't know why it doesn't get more attention. He's the heart of the film for me, is Rex. You have to feel something for Rex in order to feel something about this film. And maybe not everybody does feel the emotion of the film. They don't see themselves in Rex. Maybe they don't process grief the way that I have. I know that I'm not normal necessarily. I know that my anguish and torment is not what everybody feels, especially 14 years after someone that 
they love has died. I think most people would probably be in a better place than I am. But I saw myself in Rex and so for me he is part of the heart of the film and he is a big reason why it hit me in a really emotional way. So there's this scene halfway through the film about and it's just stunning and Rex and his girlfriend go to France. When Saskia and Rex stopped at the gas station, they were stopping there and then Saskia was going to drive on the highway and they were going to go to a place called Boivau. Um, I think it means old wood. And it's this place in France that they were going to travel to once they left the gas station. Well, obviously that never happened. They never got to go there. Rex and his new girlfriend go to go to this place. Boivieux, I think. It might be Boivieux. I'm not always good at pronunciation. So they come to this road and they start to walk up it. Rex thinks there might be people at the end of the road. And then all of a sudden, Rex sees this old car. And the car is the one that he was driving with Saskia the day that she disappeared. The bikes are on the top. That's how we know it's the car. And they are inside the car, Rex and Saskia. And he starts to run after it. What this car is, this car is not real obviously. This car is something that he has conjured. It's not even a memory that he's conjured because they never made it to Boivier. It's not a memory, it's a potential experience that could have happened. It's interesting we don't have a link, we don't have a word for that. Like we have a word for things that did happen, memory, but we don't necessarily have a word for things that never happened but could have happened. There may be a German word for it. There's a long German word for all kinds of uh, feelings and, and things. So he has created this car that is driving down this road and he's running after it and they're talking and they're inside the car beside each other. He's chasing the memory of him. He's chasing the memory of her and he will go as far as he can to find her. But I thought this was an amazing scene in the way that Schlauser is looking at memory and looking at the force power of it, the destructive power of it. Like all of a sudden there it is. There's that car with the bikes on it and it's right in front of Rex and he's chasing it and he'll go as far as he can to find her. He will go too far. He will go too deep into that darkness thinking that he can retrieve her or know what she suffered and it will be his own undoing, his own destruction and he's heading right for it, right for the collision with Lamorne. Saskia, collided with Lamorne and Rex is about to collide with him too. And a little later in the scene, Rex is lying on the grass after they've walked down the road. There's like this house or something. I think it's like abandoned. And they're just lying on this hill. I think there's this large tree. It looks like a cypress tree. He's lying by it and he almost goes into this trance or he seems to have a break with reality in that moment. It's like this spasm or seizure. And the girlfriend is like touching his face and trying to break him out of it. Break him out of this spell. Almost like a spell of memory. And he starts to scream out Saskia's name. And it was such a scene of primal grief that I have rarely seen in my life. And I was very moved by it. 
I was incredibly moved by it. By him chasing after that car, chasing after that. You can't even call it a memory because it never happened. That car never drove down that road. But he sees them. He remembers them. He remembers himself and Saskia. He remembers what they were. And maybe when you're somebody who's obsessed with the dead or obsessed with the past, that's what you're doing. You're always chasing these memories. You're always chasing these things that you can't have again, that you will never touch, you will never um, experience, and that's what hurts. He can't go back three years to the gas station. He can't undo it. He can't change it, but he desperately wants to. And his obsession with Saskia is killing him. It's killing his body. It's killing his mind. It's killing his ability to live. He is so obsessed with death, really, because she's most likely dead. And he's haunted by her. And just chasing that car, chasing those memories, chasing that obsession, chasing her, and he can't let it go. And then just screaming her name, thinking that I guess if he screams it loud enough and long enough, that she will materialize, she will appear, but she, she won't, and she doesn't. It was this, it was a scream of grief, a scream of horror too, scream of anguish and torment and pain for this woman that he wants back and he'll never have her back. But there's a woman right in front of him willing to love him and he can't love her. He will never be able to love her the way that she deserves to be loved. This is the emotional force of the film for me, is the grief, the loss, the obsession, all of it. Like I said earlier, people talk about Lamorne, Raymond Lamorne, the killer, but I think that Rex is the more fascinating character because of that mixture of obsession, guilt, grief, and fury that he has. I think he's a more compelling character. And everybody talks about the ending of the film, and of course, rightfully so. Um, It's a shocking ending. It's an unforgettable ending that I'll talk about. But for me, with the second viewing, I felt that richness and that depth and that emotion of the rest of the film that not as many people talk about. The relationship between Saskia and Rex, Rex himself dealing with his grief and his anger and his anguish and his torment over what happened to Saskia and and dealing with loss. He has lost her. That's that's the emotional part of the film. And I think I'm drawn to horror films or scary films, thriller films that have an emotional pull to them. And that emotion is usually loss. Rex can't even grieve because he doesn't know what happened to Saskia. It reminds me of another film that I covered. I have an episode about called Under the Sand by Francois Ozon. And it stars the magnificent Charlotte Rampling, one of her greatest performances. That is a film in which a woman's husband disappears while they're on vacation at the beach. It's set in France. And she can't accept it. She can't deal with his disappearance. Rex doesn't know what to feel. I think that's why he becomes so obsessed with this search for Saskia and knowing how she died. He can put his focus into that rather than the grief. He doesn't have to think about anything else if he's searching for Saskia. Everything goes into that. And when I saw this scene of him near that cypress tree breaking down, him running after the car, and then everything else that that happens in the film, I feel like this film is definitely a masterpiece. 
that emotional force is something I had forgotten and maybe I didn't even pick up on it the first time because I was so wrapped up in the suspense of the film. What's going to happen? How does it end? What's going on? That I didn't pay attention to maybe some of these more subtle and emotional moments. So there isn't that, that there is not that suspense in a second viewing necessarily because you know the ending but there is such a richer experience in revisiting it. Noticing the nuances of that relationship, understanding Rex's anguish, seeing the evil of Lamorne, and what is the cost of knowing. We want to know what happened to Saskia. Rex wants to know what happened to Saskia, but what is the cost of knowing? I think that's a big question in this film beyond just the moral stuff or what does evil look like? What is the nature of evil and violence that maybe we think about with Lamorne? But with Rex, I think a big question is, what is the cost of knowing what happened to Saskia? Because his quest to know is his undoing, and it is his destruction. So for some of this part, we see Rex. Now we see how Rex's life is going to intersect with Lamorne's life. Because um, one night, Lamorne and his daughters are watching the news when Rex shows up on a program. And he's talking about the five times that he was contacted by the killer. And there's even video footage shown at one of the places it was taken at one of the places where Rex was supposed to meet Lamorne. And it's just a huge crowd of people. And Lamorne is on it with his daughter. So he, in many ways, he's this man hiding in plain sight. He's right there. He's right there the whole time. He's there at the gas station. He's there at the cafe with Rex. He's right there. And he never notices him. And this is when Rex talks directly to the killer, to Lamorne saying that he wants to meet him because he wants to know what happened to Saskia. And he says that a few times. I need to know. I need to know. And in this way, when he appears on this program, he's sort of sealing his own fate. He is asking for this. He is asking for contact with Lamorne. And he can't go back once he does that. He can't go back. And of course, all this, this focus on Saskia means that he can't focus on his current girlfriend. And I do, they eventually break up in the film. He's always consumed by Saskia. And I think m many people can relate to that, even if their loved one didn't vanish. That feeling of being haunted by the dead, haunted by those you have lost. And the danger that comes with that. And the way that when you are pulled so much into the past and you can't leave it, you can't let it go to some extent. How can you live in the present? How can you have a rich, fulfilling, meaningful life when you can't live in the life that you have? And I feel that a lot. I feel that that pull of the past and that drowning in it and the way that it... Uh, pulls you under. And I often feel like I can't accept my life. I can't accept what is because I'm always thinking about what was. And, and I see that in Rex. He can't live. He can't love the woman in front of him. Only the woman he violently lost. He has to fight for Saskia. He has to find out what happened to her. For him, Saskia is not in the past. She feels his present too. She feels it. She floods it and he can't escape it. And that is why he takes these risks. That's why he really puts his life on the line 
contacting the killer, asking the killer to contact him, he is entering something that he's not prepared for and that he's not going to know how to handle. And there's this scene where Rex and his girlfriend, they really his ex-girlfriend because in this scene they break up. They're watching the, the, the program that Rex appeared on. They're watching the footage of it. And there's this photo of Saskia that appears on the screen. In that moment, they're both looking at the screen. They're both looking at Saskia. They're looking at this woman who is in between them and who separates them forever. They can never be close. They can never have a real relationship because Saskia is always there. I just felt so deeply compelled by Rex, particularly in this section of the film where it's just him and he's in pursuit. He's in that obsession, but he's also in that grief and in that torment. He's in that desire to recapture or alter the past. He's in that obsession with the dead, with the lost the vanished. The past vanishes just as as people can vanish and all of it's gone and he can't have any of it back but he wants to know what happened to Saski and that's really the only thing that sustains him. Not love, not anything else, just that obsession to know and just his torment. I could feel it and I know it inside myself and lately I've just been trying I don't know what the words are that I'm looking for. Like, I don't want to be tormented. I I don't want to be this way. I want to be productive. I want to be alive. I want to feel alive. I want to be happy and joyous. I want love and connection. I want a life. You know, I don't want to be haunted by the past at all times. I don't want to be tormented. I don't want to be in pain and suffering because that has taken such a toll on me. There is a cost to it. There is a cost when you are obsessed with those who you have lost, obsessed with the dead. And I've paid that cost and I've lived it and I've experienced it. And I see the path that Rex is going down. And maybe in a way I see myself on that same path. And I think, how do I get off this path? How do I live with the death of my father without letting it destroy me? Because for a very long time it has destroyed me and it has made me somebody that I don't want to be. I mean, I'm proud of the person I am. I think that I'm a smart, you know, interesting, worthy person. You know, that I am worthy of love. I am worthy of knowing. I am worthy of these things. I do feel that in myself, you know, but there's also this part of me that is so broken and so shattered and doesn't know how to cope, doesn't know how to live, doesn't know how to function. I just feel like I could have done so much more with my life than what I've done if I hadn't been trapped in this pain and trapped in this grief and and just been, you know, crumbling and falling apart because of the trauma and everything that I've been through. I think Rex in a way is like a warning He's a warning to me. I think he's a warning to anybody who has an obsession, a dark obsession, something that could hurt them. You're going down a path that could ruin you and could destroy you. And you may come to a point where you can't go back. You can't go back the way that you came. You can't reverse it. You know, when do you get to that point? When are you so far gone? Because Rex is, is so far gone. Rex can't be saved. He can't be saved by his girlfriend. He can't be saved by anybody because he has to know what happened. So then we come to the part of the film where Rex and the Morn truly collide. 
and their lives almost become one in a way. And that's when, as Rex is leaving wherever he was, I don't know if it was an apartment or um, like a business building, I don't know. Lamorne is there in the parking lot and he approaches him. He shows Saskia's car keys and that's how he proves that he's not lying, that he is the killer. And Lamorne tells him that if if Rex will go with him to France, because he's obviously come to the Netherlands because Rex is Dutch. If he goes back to France with Lamorne, he'll know everything. And that's just irresistible. It's an irresistible offer. And it's a seductive deal with the devil. What's fascinating about this is that you would think in that moment, okay, the killer, most likely the killer of your girlfriend is right in front of you. Wouldn't you kill him? Wouldn't you call the police? Like, what would you do? And Rex does attack him physically. That does happen. And that's totally natural and believable. But the thing is, is that if Rex kills this man, he will not know what happened to Saskia. And that's what protects Lamorne, is that Rex is never going to kill him. He's not going to go to the police because he wants to know. And Lamorne has the power the entire time because Lamorne has the knowledge Lamorne has the information that Rex wants. So if he turns him in, if he kills him, he'll never know. So he does get into the car with Lamorne and that pretty much seals his fate as well. He gets in that car because he has to know, even if it kills him too. He has to know. Then there's a point like they start driving and eventually Rex sees Lamorne's passport. He sees Lamorne's name, his address, all of that. So at this point, this seals his fate complete. This seals his death. Lamorne cannot let Rex live because he's going to know too much about him. Rex is really on a journey towards his own death the entire time. But you don't necessarily know that the first time that you watch the film. You don't know what's going to happen to Rex. You don't know Rex could kill Lamorne. But I think once he sees that passport, <laughs> there's no way he's coming out of this alive. And they pass, uh, they pass the place where they're supposed to check your passports. And Lamorne tells them, you know, if they don't ask for my passport, if they don't ask for our passports, I'll tell you everything. And they don't ask for them. Everything's being put into, mo into motion. And when they're in the car, Lamorne opens up a little bit about his life. And he calls himself a sociopath. He talks about when he was a teenager or a kid jumping from a balcony because he wanted to defy the limits. I think that's the thing about Lamorne. He wants to defy the limits of everything. He doesn't want to be ordinary. I don't think he wants to live an ordinary life. He wants to do these diabolical acts. He's obsessed with like chemistry and numbers and calculations. He's very logical. The thing is, is that we never get a real explanation for why Lamorne does this. And this is something that's withheld for any true crime person. I think the thing that we are searching for when we watch shows, documentaries about Ted Bundy, about BTK, about all these different serial killers, the Golden State Killer, we want to know why. We want to understand why a person does this, why they get pleasure out of violence why they get pleasure out of hurting other people and destroying other people's lives. And I don't think we ever receive a satisfactory answer for it. Like we want to know how are these men created? Where do they come from? How do we prevent this? And I don't think that there's a satisfactory answer about it. Why do these men do this? Why? I mean, 
that's what keeps people going back to Ted Bundy and different people like that. Why? What happened to this person to make them the way that they are? And there's no satisfactory answer in this film either. He jumps from a balcony, right? Like, <laughs> okay, he just has this personality where he wants to do this. He also talks about how he saved a little girl from drowning. He's with his wife and children. They are near this river and I think it's a it's a little girl in the river who's drowning and he jumps in. He talks about how his daughter thought that he was such a hero and he does this I think before he starts murdering that this experience somehow triggers the murders like maybe he doesn't want to be seen as a saint he doesn't want to be seen as a hero maybe he wants to feel like he's capable of anything and that he can do things that other people can't do the way that he jumps from the balcony like I wonder if part of it is the thrill of getting away with it of doing it and nobody knows that you're doing it. Nobody knows that you're a killer. Like maybe he got a thrill out of being at that gas station and abducting her in, in plain sight, right in front of everybody. He has outsmarted everyone. That's part of it too. Like he's smarter than everybody. He's almost like superhuman. He can do what everybody else can't do. He's special. I mean, maybe that could be part of it. I don't know. I, I don't really read a lot about, oh, you know, what makes killers into killers. I don't really watch stuff like that. I don't think there's ever a satisfactory answer. But when I saw this about him saving the little girl, I was reminded of Ted Bundy because, and I feel like this might have been inspired by Bundy, because Ted Bundy in 1970 actually saved a child. He saved a little boy who almost drowned. Anne Rule talks about this in her book about Ted Bundy, The Stranger Beside Me, and I was stunned by it when I read it. And 1970 would have been before he was caught and stuff. I was always struck by this story, how a man who had killed so many, so many women, was responsible for saving the life of one person. And I've actually thought about that boy. I mean, he would be middle-aged by now. And he wouldn't be alive today if Ted Bundy hadn't saved him. His life is only possible because of Ted Bundy. But Ted Bundy took so many other lives. So many women's lives. I mean, it just stunned me. It still stuns me. And so I thought that was an interesting element to bring to Lamorne. That here is this man who seems ordinary, seems loving, seems kind, has daughters, has a wife, has saved a child all these things and then he's also a murderer and we know that this is real we know that there are people who seem very ordinary and live ordinary lives and they are killers they've done very violent things there is a way that they compartmentalize there is a way that they have this image and then there's this other part of them that goes and destroys people. Then we see some different attempts by Lamorne to abduct women. Um, he does different things and I think actually at that same gas station he tries to pick up a woman. So he just uses different things to try and lure women and he eventually decides to use a cast on his arm. He realizes that if he seems weak, if he seems helpless, that women will be more likely to help him and they will feel safer around him. Because women often have instincts in themselves when they're around certain men. Your instincts can be very powerful and you try to listen to those, listen to your gut. But if 
if they're harmed or, you know, they seem weak, women might be more comfortable around you. And he takes advantage of that just like Ted Bundy did. Ted Bundy did it many, many times where he would have a cast and he would say, can you help me? And women would help him because they thought that he needed help. And then he would abduct them in plain sight. There's a story he was at a lake that was full of people and he actually kidnapped a couple of women that day. He kidnapped multiple women in one day from a lake that had thousands of people at it. I mean, it's shocking. It was kind of similar to Saskia being abducted at the gas station with all these people around. So we finally see the scene of Saskia's abduction. The, the film has been leading us to this, especially the first time you watch. You want to know what happened in that gas station because it's withheld from you the entire time. You are like Rex. Schlauser had to withhold it from us as the audience because it's withheld from Rex. When Rex finds out, we find out right along with him. She goes in twice, actually. The first time is really brief. She picks up the frisbee that she gives to Rex once she's outside. And Lamorne sees her that first time and notices her, but they don't have any interaction because she's in and out very quickly. He almost kidnaps another woman. He even has her in his car but when he brings out the chloroform rag right before he gets into the car, he sneezes and he has to rush back into the gas station and wash his face and all of that. So that's when Saskia comes in again. She's gone back in to get drinks and then her and Rex are going to go to Boisvieux and she's going to drive for the first time on the highway. But first she wants to get drinks out of the vending machine. At this point he even has his cast off. He took it off and he's over by the drink machines when she comes in and he calls this destiny. You know he's the golden he's the other golden egg that her life is hurtling towards. These two golden eggs, right, that are going to collide and everything is going to end with that collision. Saskia is getting drinks from the machine and for whatever reason, she decides to talk to Lamorne. She's very talkative and nice and sweet and she tells him she's going to drive on the highway for the first time. She's smiling, she's giddy, she's happy. So they talk to each other and she becomes interested in his keychain that has an R on it for Raymond. She wants to get one for Rex. She thinks Rex would really like it. And on the spot, Lamorne comes up with this story that he sells the keychains and that he has some in his car. So she goes out to his car. We see how at that very moment when they leave, Rex is a little ways away with the Polaroid camera and takes a picture of them. But he doesn't see them. He doesn't notice it when he's taking the picture. He only notices later on. But I imagine when Saskia goes outside, she does see Rex nearby. She probably feels more safe. She's in a crowded place with lots of people. That would also make you feel safe. So Lamorne gets in the car. He's rummaging in a box or something and he tells her to get in. And at first, that instinct comes to her to hesitate, to not do it. Like, she knows she probably shouldn't get in that car. Even though this guy seems nice and ordinary and safe, there's nothing about him to indicate that he would be a murderer. So at first she's hesitant, but she sees a photo of his wife and daughters on the dashboard, and that puts her at ease. So he doesn't have the cast that would put her at ease, but she, like most of us, thinks, 
wow, if this guy has a wife and children, he must be a good guy. Because that's what some of this film is about, especially with Lamorne, is the way that facades and the way that images seduce us. And we think, oh, this person looks normal. This person seems okay. I should trust them. It's okay to trust them. We make these decisions like in a split second with people, right? And we take certain cues and we think that we know people when we don't really. So it puts her at ease. And as soon as she sits down, she doesn't even have like a moment to react or to resist. He puts that chloroform rag up to her face. But we do see her eyes and they are filled with shock, with terror. This scene is so intense and so haunting for me personally to see the way that she looks at him. She knows that she's been tricked. She knows she's made this fatal error. And she knows he's evil. She knows she's going to die. Again, eight years had elapsed since I last saw this film. And there were things that stayed with me. But this is one aspect that I had forgotten of this scene. And the visceral terror of it. Like the absolute, absolute visceral terror. It's just on another level. I think that... For a lot of women, this is a worst nightmare scenario. This happening of trusting the wrong person. I mean, I still think about when I was in college and I was waiting for the bus one day. A car came up. Now, thankfully, a woman was driving it. <laughs> it was a really cold day and I was waiting for the bus at college. And she offered me a ride. Like, she felt really bad that I was <laughs> standing out in the cold. And I did get into her vehicle. I did get into her car and she drove me to where I needed to go. I made a split second decision there that I didn't know. I mean, of course, I didn't think that I was going to be attacked or anything, but I was in a stranger's car and you never know what could happen or something. I remember telling my mom about it later and she was like, I can't believe you did that. But I was like, it was a woman. You know, I completely trusted her. Now, obviously, if it had been a man, I would not have done it. I just would not have done it. The thing about Saskia is that she has that instinct. She has that thing that tells her, don't get in the car. Don't get in the car. But he has put her so at ease. He seems nice. He seems decent. She sees that photo of his family. Just one second of her life. Just one one bad decision. One lapse in judgment. She dies because of it. I mean, her life is destroyed because of it. It's haunting in that way. Like, you could make one mistake. You could trust the wrong person and everything could change. And it's not necessarily a stranger that can kill you. It's somebody you love and trust. That's actually a more common scenario when it comes to murder is that like 99% of the time or 95% of the time, I don't know the statistic. It's somebody that the person knows. It's a family member, a spouse. That's who it usually is. It's not usually a stranger at all. So usually we can get hurt by the people we actually love and trust, which is heartbreaking. But she just makes this fatal error. And her eyes just, I'll never forget the look on her eyes. It sticks with me. It felt so real. And you could just feel the horror and the fear that she felt and the helplessness. So Lamorne is telling Rex this. He's telling Rex the things that Rex wants to know. He wanted to know how she got abducted. At this point, he didn't know. 
He had no idea. How did he get her to the vehicle? How did he kidnap her in front of all these people? So Lamorne tells him that. And then there's this scene where they're on the highway and they get stopped by the police because Lamorne wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And he actually has some kind of waiver for that because he is claustrophobic. That's what he reveals. That's very chilling and it's a very important detail because of the ending. So Lamorne inflicts on other people his greatest fear. He won't go through with his greatest fear. He can't even wear a seatbelt. He's so afraid of confined spaces. But with his victims, with Rex, we know that he puts him through that fear, puts him through that horrible experience. But it's a tiny detail that... Uh, Maybe the first time you're watching the film, you don't necessarily notice. Rex wants to know how Saskia died. He knows how she was abducted. He wants to know how she died. And Lamorne tells him, quote, The only way to tell you is to make you share the exact same experience unquote. And this is maybe the genius of the film. This is the twist that we don't anticipate or see coming. We don't know what Lamorne's going to do. We have a feeling he's probably going to kill Rex, yes. I mean, that's, I think, in our minds when we're watching it the first time. But we don't know how, we don't know where. And this idea that for you to really know the way someone died, you would have to relive it yourself. You would have to live through it yourself. You would have to experience the same death as them. There's just something, I I don't even have a word for it, that Rex is willing to do that. I think that's what stuns me. I don't know if it's romantic, if that's love or what, or that's insanity and just pure lunacy, that he he would consent to it, that he would put himself through it. That's how obsessed he is with knowing what happened to her. That's how obsessed he is with Saskia, that he would willingly do it. Of course, he doesn't know how horrific it's going to be, but Lamorne tells him the terms. He tells him, the only way you can know is for you to go through it yourself, to share the same experience as her. I wonder if in Rex's mind, it's the only way he can get close to her again. It's the only way maybe that he can atone for what he did, for what he feels that he did in not protecting her, in abandoning her when she needed him most. wonder if he feels that too. Not just that he abandoned her in the tunnel, but that somehow he abandoned her at that gas station, that he wasn't there when she needed him because he's right there. He takes the picture. And I wonder if that weighs on him too, that he saw her without really realizing that he had seen her and that he feels responsible for what happened. For him to die the way that she did, it's like an atonement or it's some kind of gesture. It's some kind of grand gesture or it's a way for him to come to terms with it. I don't know or take responsibility for it. I'm not sure. But he he is going to consent to this. And something that occurred to me is that in a weird way, both Rex and Saskia trust the one person you should never trust. And that's a murderer. They both get into the vehicle of somebody they should not trust. And that's Lamorne, right? Rex somehow believes Lamorne. Lamorne could be lying to him about a lot of things and he would never know. 
So you can't really trust Lamorne. And then Lamorne brings out the thermos with the coffee that has the sleeping pill in it. Rex asks for Saskia's keys. He wants to see them. And then he ends up throwing the cup of coffee at Lamorne, throwing it in his face. At first, he doesn't want to go through with it. Just like Saskia was hesitant to get in Lamorne's vehicle, Rex is very hesitant to go through with this and to consent to basically his own death, consent to dying the way that Saskia died. Only through death can he know what happened to her. That's the sick part of this film is in order for him to obtain the knowledge, he has to die and he has to choose that death. He could walk away. He he has seen Lamorne's passport. So I think he would definitely be in danger and he would be at risk probably because he does know who Lamorne is and where he li- and where he lives. I don't know if the police would believe him. I don't know if there would be any evidence to put him away, but he could possibly walk away. <laughs> I don't know if Lamorne would let him or not. So he could walk away and he doesn't seem to want to go through with it at first. His need to know gets the best of him and they are at the gas station. That's an important detail. They have stopped stopped at the gas station where Saskia was abducted. So they are back in the terrain. They are back in this landscape of where the abduction happened, which is, I'm sure, very powerful for Rex and in his mind. And he's over by the tree. And when him and Saskia got to the gas station, they sort of like laid on the grass and were hanging out. She got him a frisbee. So they were on the grass area and she buried some coins by a tree for no reason or for whatever reason. I don't know what it meant. She had put some rocks on top of the area where she buried the coins and he finds the spot where she put these coins and it's almost like maybe a sign he takes it as telling him maybe that he should do that. And then he starts to run around. This scene was amazing to me. The suspense of it, the buildup of it, because he's running around this tree like a maniac and the rain is coming down. It has started to storm and he just runs and runs and runs for the longest time. And it's almost like as he's running, he's deciding, should I do this? It's almost like he's at war with himself. I do feel that about Rex. I think he's at war with himself of, should I do this? Should I not do this? And ultimately something in him tells him to do it. He goes round and round the tree. And then I think in this scene, if I'm remembering correctly, we're watching it through the windshield of Lamorne's vehicle. So we're in the vantage point of Lamorne watching it. And that was fascinating to me. And everything was so blurry because you know the way rain and the effect that rain and water on a windshield or on a window or glass has, you know, the effect that it has. And plus it's dark. It's at night. There are the lights of the gas station. It just had this, um, you almost felt like you were underwater or something or like in a car wash. It just had this, I don't know, this wild feel to it, like this otherworldly feel to it. Cause there's the neon lights of the gas station, wrecks going round and round. This is what I mean by the visual, the visual feast of this film and the way that the images convey the psychological intensity of the characters and conveys some of the emotion and conveys, I don't know, like the imagery in this film was so 
captivating to me and so well thought out and perfectly executed. I was really stunned by it. I mean, I've come to love this film even more with the second viewing. So Rex is going around and around and he, and then eventually he stops and he runs. Instead of running around, he runs right for the coffee thermos and there's some coffee in the, the lid and he drinks it. He drinks the sleeping pills, basically. He drinks the potion that is going to lead him to death. And only death will lead him back to Saskia, in a way. I almost feel like maybe his his journey with Lamorne is almost like being in the underworld. Like a journey through the underworld. It reminds me of the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. Because Eurydice dies and she goes down to the underworld, and Orpheus goes down there to get her. The one thing that he's not supposed to do as they are leaving the underworld, he has found her and he's taking her out. The one thing he cannot do is look back at her as he's leaving the underworld, because if he looks back at her, he'll lose her forever. And she will forever be in the underworld. And of course, as soon as they're about to leave and exit, he looks back and he loses her forever. I almost feel like Rex's journey is almost like a journey to hell. A journey to the underworld and Saskia would sort of be our Eurydice or something. He is searching for her. That's what I'm trying to say is that his car ride with Lamorne is a journey into the underworld, a journey into hell to find the woman that he has lost, the woman that he loves, that he will love forever. But of course, with his own death, he loses her forever. He loses her because if he's dead, then he can't remember her. He can't be alive with her memory. He can't even carry her memory on because now he's dead just like she is, like she most likely is. If he could have lived, if he could have chosen life, then he could still be alive and thinking of her and remembering her. But instead, in many ways, he chooses death. Saskia didn't choose death. Saskia wanted to live. It's unfortunate that Rex does choose death because he needs to know what happened to her. And Lamorne is watching this. He's watching Rex drink the coffee that has the sleeping pills in it. The rain is just drenching the window. And now instead of us being inside the car, looking through the windshield at Rex, now we're outside the car looking at Lamorne. And the rain is drenching that windshield. And at times it blurs his face completely out. At times his face is, is blurring and smearing and then at times it's blotted out. It's a stunning effect that you see. Just a feast, a feast of like visual uh, beauty, I think, even though the subject matter is so horrific. But there are so many scenes in this and so many images in this that will stay with me and that I will think about. This film feels close to a perfect film for me. I cannot identify any missteps or anything that I felt like, oh, that was unnecessary. I think I love it even more with this second viewing as I have been talking about. Everything in it is perfectly placed and plotted. 
it feels like this puzzle and every piece comes together so perfectly. And and the emotional component of it, the emotions are so intense and you can feel the battle inside of Rex. Like that's one of the most powerful parts of the film. He's really battling himself. He's battling the intellectual part of himself that knows this is a ruse, just like what Lamorne did to Saskia. But there's this other part of him, the emotional part of him, that wants to know what she she went through. As I said, almost like as a way to atone for not protecting her or saving her. In a way, I think his obsession with Saskia's disappearance is him choosing death. He's chosen death for three years. He can't choose life. He could have had a life with his girlfriend. He could have moved forward with not knowing what happened to Saskia. But he couldn't do that. He chooses death when he drinks that coffee. He chooses his own death and the death of Saskia that he needs to feel and touch and know. Maybe it's impossible for him to live with it or to live again. Maybe death is his only choice from the very beginning. It's almost like he attracts Lamorne to him. He conjures him, brings him closer. I almost feel like maybe Rex is the moth and Lamorne is the flame and Rex is going to immolate himself or he's going to go towards that fire even if it kills him. And Lamorne can't resist killing Rex too. He knows Rex will go for it. So he preys on that. He preys on Rex's obsession and his need to know. When he does drink that coffee, he gets in Lamorne's car and he says that he drank it for Saskia. And Lamorne replies, quote, She never left you the time to fall out of love, unquote. I think that's so powerful. And he's really like drinking poison. And I think Schlausser mentioned in an interview about Romeo and Juliet and the death of Rex and Saskia, that they are they are together in death. It's almost like they're they're one in death. They're reunited in death. And if you think about it with Romeo and Juliet, they drink the poison, don't they? Or one of them drinks poison to be with the other one. I think it's Juliet, I want to say. I read it long ago. <laughs> it's almost like I see it that way, of Rex drinks the poison for, for Saskia. He drinks the poison to be with her. Maybe he just needed an excuse to die. Like he need, he was not going to commit suicide, obviously. Maybe this is his excuse to finally die and to be free of the pain that he is in because he is truly tormented. He is a dying man, really. I feel like he's been dying for three years. He's dying of heartache. He's dying of grief. And maybe in a way, I feel like I've been dying of grief for so long now longer than I can even comprehend. And I have felt that way for a long time, that the grief was killing me. I still don't know what to do. I still don't know how to take that that trauma in my hands, take that loss in my hands, and do something else with it. I'm not sure what else to do with it. I can't just put it away in a drawer and pretend like it didn't happen. And so I don't quite know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with this open seeping wound inside of me. And I keep looking for something to feel it. I keep looking for something to heal it. And it's like I can't find it. I can't find it in people because I just, it's so hard to connect with people. 
It's exhausting to try to connect to people. It hasn't happened. I don't know if it ever will. I want it to happen. I try. I try over and over and over again to connect to people and it never works out. (laughs) Like ever. I mean, it's just one one failure, one letdown after another, and that's hard. So I can't find anything in people, you know, even though I still try to, I try to be open to it. I try to connect, even though it never works. You know, I can't find it. Like as much as I love books and art and, and cinema, those things can't change that wound either. I don't know what can touch it. I don't know what can heal it. Is it me? Like I have to do it, but I don't know how. And I guess I see in Rex, like I see his self-destruction because I have that in me too, where I'm extremely self-destructive and have been for a long time. But it's like part of me understands it. Like I understand why he can't live because for a long time, I feel like I can't live with this. I can't live with this death. I can't live with this absence. It's eating me alive. It's killing me. But then this other part of me wants to live and wants to have a life and contribute and create. And there's this other part of me that wants to find the beauty in life, wants to hold on to the beauty of life, wants to love, wants to do all these things that I want to do. So there's like this you know, this contradiction or conflict in me between the light and the darkness. The darkness is that grief. It is depression. It is that wound. And then there's this other part of me that is passionate about art and cinema and, you know, wants to share herself and wants to fall in love and wants <laughs> and wants her dreams to come true, you know, and just wants all these things. Like, all I, I just won't, won't, won't all the time. And I never get anything that I do want. And that's painful. Like, I just want the pain to go away. I want the grief to go away. I want the absence and the void and all this in my life and in me to go away. I just want to dream it away. And I can't. It's always there. The death is always there. He is always not there right? My father's not there and he's never going to be there again. And it's like, what do I do with that? Like, I want to, I want to do better. I want to live. I want to contribute. I don't want to be in a ball on the floor. So fragile and crumbling. I don't want to be that. I don't, I don't know how to be anything else than what I am. And so that's the pain of it. It's like, what the hell do you do? (laughs) It's so painful. And I think Rex for three years, this is who he's been. He doesn't know how to be anything else. He doesn't know how to give up Saskia because Saskia meant so much to him and he loved her deeply. When you love somebody deeply, you don't just forget about them in a few days. You don't just get over it. There is no getting over it. There will never be a way to get over it. He doesn't know what to do. He's in pain. He's lost. He's angry. He's heartbroken. He's shattered. And he needs to know what happened to her. And he drinks that coffee so that he can know. He can't turn away. He can't walk away. He can't live. Like he's a character who fundamentally can't live anymore. And so he goes towards death. He goes towards death. It's the only ending for him. It's the only ending for him. Because he is somebody in so much pain that he can't carry it anymore. He can't bear it anymore. His life has become unbearable. And you see that in that scene where he's by the cypress tree and he's losing his mind and yelling her name. He just wants to get back to Saskia. He wants to get back to that life. Three years ago, 
just like I want to go back to when I had my father and life was so different. This is the before and after of his life too. Of course you're going to idealize that before. I mean, I do. And it's like the Eden before the fall. That's what it is. It's what Saskia is. That was his paradise. And he wants to go back to that. And he wants to save it and preserve it to prevent the fall. You know, he wishes he could stop that and he can't. And the only way back to her is death. And the only possible end to the pain that he feels is is death. And I think that's why he drinks. He has a moment where he almost doesn't drink. He has a moment where he could choose life. He could finally choose life. He could let the obsession go because he's come to the precipice. He has come to the cliff that he is going to fall over and that is going to kill him. What comes next? And he can't resist it. It's too seductive to know, to have all his answers that he needs. And so he has to drink. He has to drink it. He says he drinks for Saskia, but maybe he really drinks for himself. Is it selfish? I mean, is this a selfish act? Him needing to know the way that she died? I mean, if she's not alive, she's not alive. It doesn't matter. It's not going to affect her either way, but he has to know. He has to be the one to know. It's all about him and what he needs to know. Rex drinks, and then we come to our final scene, and we see Lamorne dumping dirt on this wooden box and then of course we see Rex inside of that box. He's inside his coffin. He has this little lighter. He has this small lighter that he uses. If you think about it, this scene is very daring. It's very dark. It could have gone badly. It, it could have not worked out. But the way that Schlauser did it was just genius. It's just the darkness and then that lighter. It's through that lighter that we see flashes of Rex's face, his hands, his feet illuminated as he screams in the darkness of this coffin, basically. A scream that, as we know, nobody will hear in the secluded estate in the countryside. He's been buried alive or he's in the act of being buried alive. And it's really an incomprehensible horror that I'm sure everybody on the planet fears. It's a primal fear. I remember learning years ago that, you know, hundreds of years ago or so, it was really long ago, at least the 1800s, maybe before, some coffins of the dead, they would have a bell or something attached to a string and then the string would be attached to the coffin, I want to say. I don't know all the details, but it was like this device so that if you woke up when you were in the coffin and you had been buried, say that they declared you dead and you weren't really dead. And there are stories like this of people like being in a morgue and waking up and they weren't really dead. And so back in the old days or whatever, a century or more ago, there would be this contraption where if you woke up in your coffin underground, you would, I guess, move the string or something and then that would do a bell. Again, I don't know all the details, um, but it was some kind of apparatus that allowed you to sound a warning and let people know that you were alive in your coffin. I mean, that's how scared people were and, and have been, always have been, of being buried alive. And that came to mind when I saw this scene. I mean, he's buried alive. And there's these drops of dirt that come through the slats of the box 
that are on his face. He screams for Saskia and that flame starts to die and the flame starts to morph. This is another amazing visual effect in the film along with that scene in the rain where Lamorne's face blurs, the other scene where Lamorne's sunglasses reflects the face of Saskia. This is really stunning when uh, the flame from the lighter, it starts to morph into the light at the end of the tunnel where he and Saskia had their fight and he drove out to find her waiting for him. And then he sees her face as she's sitting by the tree at the gas station before he lost her. It's just very moving when we see her at the end of the film because we haven't seen her. I mean, we only saw her for about 10 minutes at the beginning. Then we see her engaging with Lamorne before he abducts her. We see the scene of her abduction. We never do see how she dies. We will never know that, just like Rex will never really know. So we don't see her a lot. So because of that, I think it's more of an emotional punch when we see her at the end and in that light. And it's maybe what Rex is thinking in his mind of him seeing Saskia again. Now he knows how she died or how she possibly died, if this is how it really happened. We don't know for sure if this is how Lamorne killed her. I think it's likely. So Rex finally knows the thing he's wanted to know the entire time, and he dies in the act of knowing. The knowing kills him. That is what kills him, is that he had to know. His obsession also kills him. I mean, Lamorne kills him, obviously. He is totally responsible, but Rex went towards it. Rex consented to taking the coffee and you know drinking the coffee going on the journey he went to death he did he went into the underworld knowing full well that he would not be able to leave knowing full well he was making a, a deal with the devil so his death and her death now bind them together as Schlauser said, they're like Romeo and Juliet, forever together in death. This scene is terrifying. This is the reason I think that a lot of people say that this is one of the most terrifying films they've seen or ever seen. This is Rex in his own coffin, in the darkness and still alive, which means he's going to die a slow death being buried underground, being buried alive. And it's horrific. He's in a tight, confined space. There's no way out and there's just darkness, total darkness, except for that lighter that eventually dies. And he has to, I mean, I think what's so horrific about it is that he is conscious of his own death. He could be there for days, right? I mean, days. It's a slow death. I mean, I guess it would be from the suffocation. I don't know how long that would take. So this is a slow, drawn out, long death. This is not quick. That's horrific and terrifying. And just the total darkness that he's in. And no matter how loud he screams, nobody will hear him. It is a primal fear, I think, to fear that. A primal fear 
that none of us want to experience. So this scene is famous. I mean, the ending of this film is very famous. And I think this is also one of those films where if you if you recommend it to people, don't tell them anything about it. I went into the film not knowing anything about it. I knew it was a famous film. I knew it had like a shocking ending or something like that. But I had no idea what that ending was. And I think that makes for the maximum impact of the ending for sure. This is the reason I think people consider it so terrifying. I mean, to me, this is terrifying and Saskia's abduction is really terrifying. It haunts you. The ending absolutely haunts you. And Rex, Rex had no idea that that's what he was walking into. He probably thought, oh, I'll be shot. Or, you know, instead he's given this slow, horrific death that Saskia probably experienced as well. What do you even say? It is deeply, deeply terrifying. The way that it was filmed, like you just see his hands or you see his feet or you see his face. You hear him screaming. I mean, it just, it's horrific in every way. But the film goes on after this. I mean, you would think maybe it would just end in the darkness, but it doesn't. And I want to say also, before I started to record my episode, we lost electricity at our house and it was dark. It was like late at night. I've always felt so, I don't want to say scared when we lose electricity at night, but just it's an eerie experience anytime you lose electricity at night because the world is plunged into total darkness. There are no lights on. There are not just there are no lights on in your house. There tend to be no lights on outside either. Like the lights of your neighbors are not on. The street lights may not be on. So it's a world of complete and total darkness. And the darkness has this thickness to it almost because it's silent too. And there is no illumination at all. So the darkness is thick and it feels more oppressive. And you just feel different. The world feels different when there's no electricity. And you forget how powerful light is in your life. How important light is. It's only when it's taken away and there is the absence of it that you realize how important it was. And so I also think it's meaningful that Saskia is associated with light. That when he's in the darkness of the coffin, the light, the lighter, the little flame becomes the light of Saskia. It becomes her face and her, right? Her soul, her being, everything about her. Because that's what she was to Rex. She was the light. And her absence has created a darkness that has overtaken him, that has buried him sort of metaphorically for those three years. He was already dying. He was already buried. He was buried in the grief. He was buried in the anguish and the torment and the darkness left behind by her death, her her vanishing, the absence of her, which is the absence of light. She is intimately associated with light, you know, at the end of this film. So when the electricity went out for us, I was like, what a coincidence (laughs) when I'm about to record my episode on the vanishing. So the electricity came back on and I recorded a lot of this episode and then the electricity went back off. (laughs) And so now I'm recording the the last bit of it about the ending. The electricity going out, it, it reminded me of that total darkness. It gave me a taste of that kind of thick, heavy, frightening darkness. 
like just the void, the void of death, the darkness of death that is in that coffin with Rex. And you can feel it. And Schlauser makes us feel it. And we do. But it doesn't end there. The film does not end in that darkness. It really ends when we see the family on the country estate where Rex has been buried. They are outside, like, tending the garden and stuff like that. The wife, the children, they're all there. This idyllic, you know, family, this ordinary, happy family. And there's a dead man underneath their feet and they don't even know it. We see an area that looks like it's been disturbed. Like it looks like there's extra earth on top where there's like a shrubbery. I mean, how I was thinking too, like how many bodies lie under the earth of this house, of this estate? How many people has Lamorne killed? It's never answered in this film. We don't know. We know he's killed Rex and Saskia, but it's hard to believe he hasn't killed more than that. And then the camera pans to the back of Lamorne's car where there's a newspaper that um, has a headline about Rex disappearing and how he's missing too and how it's a double disappearance and his uh, photo is beside Saskia's photo and that's how it ends. Very eerie, very haunting. I mean this film, I don't have any more to say. (laughs) I've gone on long enough about it. It's just a powerful film about some very primal fears I think. Fear of a disappearance, fear of loss, but it's also about grief. There's an emotional power to it. I'm really glad that I rewatched it. I think the second viewing was even richer, even more meaningful for me, even more insightful and illuminating for me. And it made me think about so much and it will haunt me forever. <laughs> this is one of those films that will definitely haunt me for like a really, really long time. I liked it and then now I love it. And I think it is just absolutely a masterpiece. So many layers to it. It's so much more than just a scary film with a shocking ending. Like, if it was, it would just be a flash in the pan. You know, you could just watch it once. And, oh, if it was only the ending that mattered, if you you can't reduce this film just to the ending. Like, it's not a gimmick film. Like, there are some films that are all about that shocking ending, that unexpected ending. And then you watch it again and there's no more meaning to it. There's nothing further to it. That's not this film. The ending is powerful and shocking and horrific and terrifying. But then you watch the film again. And like Stanley Kubrick, you watch it multiple times. And you're seeing more layers. You're seeing more emotional power. You're seeing so much more. Like this film is is absolutely a masterpiece. So glad I chose to talk about it. Thanks so much for listening. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Paulina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.